This episode of Engineering Matters was made in partnership with Fugro. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and this is the second episode in our two-part special on offshore wind. Last week, we went back to the north of England to the UK's first offshore wind project to find out how it kick-started the UK's journey to becoming the world's leading offshore wind farm market. Today, the UK has 40% of the world's offshore wind capacity, with 8.5 gigawatts of generating capacity installed from 2,324 turbines. This week, we're looking to the future and finding an industry that's pushing to meet an enormous 40 gigawatt target over the next decade to build new wind turbines in some of the most difficult construction sites in the world. At the same time, the industry is being challenged by government to continue to bring down costs and accelerate construction. The turbines are getting further offshore, making them more vulnerable to ocean weather systems. Ground conditions are more complicated, construction's more difficult, and the turbines are six times larger than they were when the industry first began in 2000. The implications of this are massive, and so are the foundations which hold the turbines securely in the seabed. As towers and blades get ever larger, the invisible infrastructure that anchors them into the multi-layered geology of the UK's coastal waters also has to evolve. Up, up until now, throughout the world, all the easy sites have been developed. So that's all the shallow water nearshore sites. This is Peter Richards, Chief Engineer for Fugro. He's based at Falmouth in Cornwall, which took six hours to get to by train, but it was worth it, because it's here that a team of over 150 drilling specialists are working on a new system to transform the way that wind turbine foundations are delivered. But first, I asked Peter to tell us more about how these wind turbines are supported within the seabed. Going back to the sort of early days of some of the demonstration projects in the Baltic, um, monopiles are, are, are the typical wind farm foundation. Back in those days, they would be sort of two or three metres diameter. And then over the years, they've grown in size and we're now currently up to installing piles that are eight, nine, ten metres in diameter. Monopiles are exactly as they sound, single tubes of steel that run deep into the ground. And they're hammered into the seabed and then the wind turbine is constructed on top. The problem lies in hammering the tube into the ground. There's a limitation on the soil resistance, meaning that the pile and the ground can't take the force of the hammer. So you get to a point where the hammer energy is sufficient to deform the pile and then you're not able to, to insert the pile. So for, for those sites with the more difficult ground conditions, you have to drill a socket, place the pile in the socket and then grout up the annulus of the socket. Very much like you would install a, a gate at home with a fence post. And as Peter's already explained, future offshore wind means working in difficult ground conditions. Drilling piles instead of hammering or driving them into the ground is going to be a necessity for offshore wind, not just in the UK, but all over the world. And this brings new challenges. Unfortunately, 
conversely, uh, drilling is relatively slow and it means that you are um, increasingly more exposed to those changes in weather, whether they be wind or sea. And that means your very, your program, your installation program for foundations is very, very vulnerable if you, if you have to drill foundations. So the joint objective um, for drilling offshore is to minimize the weather impact and improve your productivity, ultimately, so that you become competitive with driving foundations. So the team of experienced marine contractors had two objectives in mind, improving productivity and minimising the impact of the weather. About a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, we were looking at some of the French wind farms with very, very large diameter rock sockets. And we and we realised that if we were only drilling 20 centimetres an hour, that um, the cycle time per foundation was going to be measured in weeks rather than in days. So we knew at that point that there needed to be a, a significant improvement in drilling rate on these, these larger monopiles. France is seeking to follow the UK in starting an offshore wind industry. But although developers first began looking at the industry in 2005, progress has been slow. So uh, the government uh, uh, has done the first round uh, of uh, offshore wind in uh, 2012 with uh, four sites uh, awarded uh, two years later, followed by a second round in 2014 uh, including two additional uh, wind farms. This is Denis Burrell. He's a commercial manager for Fougro in France, where he's been involved in site characterisation for the six proposed wind farms. These sit on the northwest coast near Brittany and Normandy, where the country has the best wind resources. We have been involved at first in the site selection. We have done uh, very early in the project development some spatial uh, analyses in order to select uh, the most favorable uh, areas in terms of uh, ground condition. Denis explains that the slow progress in France was down to the lack of legislative framework for offshore wind concessions, which left the sites open to multiple and repeated objections. Looking ahead, this has now changed. So the government uh, has now taken uh, uh, the lesson learned from this uh, delay, uh, from these issues, and uh, the government has changed the legislation uh, and simplified the legislation uh, for the offshore wind. Now developers only have to apply for one consent permit instead of several and objectors will only have one opportunity to contest future projects. Uh, in terms of uh, geology, uh, the French uh, um, continental shelf is characterised by a, a much more variable uh, geology. And particularly, uh, there are a number of sites where uh, hard rocks are, are outcropping on the seabed and this may create uh, some high challenges uh, for the installation of foundation uh, for wind turbines. And this is where Peter and his team of drilling specialists in Falmouth come in because it's likely that for some of these wind farms the foundations will have to be drilled into the bedrock. And it's not just the case in France. Round four sites in the UK are set to employ drilling technology as the pile driving method that's so common in oil and gas and marine works reaches its technical limits. To understand how Peter's research will improve the speed of foundation construction, I needed to understand how the drilling is typically carried out. 
in the drilling industry, you can have a top drive or a bottom drive. The top drive, basically all the energy, whether it's rotation or, or impact, is, is um, supplied from the top of the drill string, and then the drill strings used to transmit that energy to the, to the cutting face. For offshore wind foundations, a top drive approach has historically been the most commonly used method. What's unique about offshore drill strings is that you have to deploy them through the water column. So unlike land drilling, where you're, where you're in effect drilling a socket into the rock, the drill string is unsupported. Because the drill string is unsupported, it means you have to keep it in tension. And that's what's unique and limiting about offshore drilling which means you have to have what's referred to as a big pendulum, a very, very, very heavy drill string, where you're holding back the, the drill and then just letting a little bit of weight go onto the cutters to do the, to do the work. And for harder ground, this means that heavier and harder cutters have to be used. Typically, the harder the ground, the more load you need to place on each of the cutters. And there is, there's a limiting force that you can put on the smaller cutters, then you need to go up into a bigger range of cutters. And unfortunately, because this is all done through dead weight, cantilage, you get to very, very large, heavy drill strings that are difficult to deploy and operate. The heavier bits and strings then have to be rotated slowly to maintain stability, and this further limits the excavation rates. Instead, Peter and his team want to bring the more efficient bottom drive process into the offshore wind industry, which he says is typical of horizontal drilling, where tunnel boring machines place hydraulic jacks behind the face cutter. Lessons are are already there with uh, tunnel boring machines. Most importantly, the whole tunnel boring machine isn't rotating. It's It's only the faceplate of the tunnel boring machine that's rotating and one of the benefits of that apart from the fact there's a lot less friction within the system is that um, on a machine that may be you know um, may weigh several hundred tons you're only then rotating maybe sort of 30 40 tons of that machine and that means that in, in in terms of the rotating inertia the flywheel effect if you like is much much less so we're able basically to rotate that faceplate at much much higher speeds with um with a tbm approach and this is where the the terminology vbm comes from vertical boring machine the first iteration of fugro's new drilling technology for offshore wind is a three meter diameter drill called the vbm 3000 so what we've done really over the last two years is building on our um, uh, our desks, that is, if you like, and the extrapolation of some of the FEA analysis. FEA, finite element analysis, computer modelling that predicts how a structure will respond to real forces. This year we've conducted some um, on-land um, benchmark testing of old technology versus the, the new at a a smaller sort of prototype sort of level and we have been able to achieve in in excess of um, two to three times faster drilling rates in in these sort of um, typical ground conditions and I would say in the softer conditions as much as sort of five or six times faster. This involved test drilling into concrete which was manufactured at a range of hardnesses to emulate the variety of ground conditions that the drill is going to face. Detailed design began in March 2019 and the first drill will head out to site in Scotland later this year. The seabed conditions will be variable and complex and each turbine will have a tripod foundation structure consisting of three piles. The engineering, procurement, construction and installation contractor for the foundations is SIPEM and they face a challenging deadline 
to complete 54 foundation structures before the end of 2021, within half a degree of verticality and a 50 millimeter tolerance. An experienced oil and gas contractor, Saipem is moving into offshore wind and sought out a drilling subcontractor that already had experience. Uh, my role initially was to look at various contractors, uh, see what they had to offer and recommend which contractor or help recommend which contractor would be best to work with us on the project. This is Chris Armstrong, drilling and template lead for Saipem. Fugro's, you know, they have a, they have a great track record in, in offshore drilling. This drill that we're going with is a new drill, but uh, it's, it's a combination of existing technology that has been proven. The drill itself looks to be very advantageous for us as, as the fact that it uh, drills quite quickly. And look, the guys down in Falmouth look, seem to be doing a good job with developing the drill. Well, I think one of the main, main attractions is that they're able to provide sort of an integrated solution that includes the template structure as well, which a lot of other contractors we spoke to weren't able to. This is Transportation and Installation Manager for Saipem, Frank Wong. And the template is a 1,000-tonne, six-legged steel structure that will sit on the seabed and act as a framework for the placement of the piles. Three of its legs contain a circular space for a pile to be drilled through into the ground. So the function of the template is very important to make sure that we, we can ins install the drill in the right location and, and make sure that the drive can be driven from, from the template itself. So it's very important that that interface is a white interface. If somebody designed a template separately to the drill, we end up with a solution that unlikely to, to match. By sitting on the seabed, the template and the drill will not be vulnerable to the weather issues that a top drive vessel mounted system would have to contend with. Placement of the template will come from Saipem's enormous vessel, the Saipem 7000. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Saipam 7000 is it's a, a semi-submersible crane vessel. It has two 7,000-tonne capacity cranes on it, which has typically been used in the oil and gas industry for installing jackets and large topsides. It has a large deck space, which is, which is very advantageous for this project. The, the width of the, of the vessel is about close to 100 metres, and uh, the length is... Well, two and a half times that, I'd say, three, 300 metres maybe even. So even with such a large vessel, we're, we're finding the deck space tight, but uh, most other vessels have nothing like that deck space, so we're lucky to have her. Being able to drop the template and drill down onto the seabed and then use the vessel for other activities is more efficient than a traditional top drive drilling, where the vessel would host the drill. One of the advantages of the drill is it's effectively, apart from the umbilical, it's completely detached from the, from the vessel itself. So it will be deployed from the vessel, but once it's subsea, the only connection back to the vessel is an umbilical, which, which allows us to carry on with other work on, on deck at the same time. Lifting the 1,000-tonne template down onto the seabed won't challenge the 7,000-tonne capacity cranes. What's more challenging is the complexity and variety of the seabed, which means that a range of foundation depths are required from 25 metres down to 47 metres. And we certainly are learning a lot in terms of as a, as a foundation solution where, where we're having the drill and grout. At Saipam, we are obviously looking at other areas where potentially where a drilling solution is, is required, especially in the French wind farm area. So as a group, we are very, very much very interested in, in, in what's going to happen. 
as are Fugro, who, as well as their new bottom drive drilling approach, are also bringing in innovations from other industries to accelerate downhole spoil removal, which in the past has been inefficient as much of the energy spent moving water. But they're keen to keep this new methodology a secret for now. Peter explains the problem. Unfortunately, with, with shaft sinking, and this is the same offshore with um, drilling large diameter foundations, gravity is working against you, and the material you're cutting is naturally falling down onto the base of the socket, which means when you go back over it a second time, you're basically wasting energy regrinding the material. And the problem is removing that material to the surface. Um, on smaller hulls with forward flush drilling, you can do that by providing very large volume flushes, which creates enough velocity to, to lift the material. You just can't do that with a large diameter foundation. And as large diameter foundations are set to be a feature of future wind farms, new spoil removal techniques are therefore set to be critical. One of the innovations that should help these variable offshore sites is that just like tunnel boring machines, the casing or lining for the pile is going to be pulled in behind the cutting head, providing protection from the risk of loose overburdened layers collapsing into the hole. So uh, one of the things that is done onshore at smaller diameters is piggybacking the casing in. And this is where the drill string is used to drag or to, to jack the casing in as you're drilling. And uh, one of the features of the VBM 3000 is that we're able to jack in casings so that we don't risk um, undermining or a hole collapse of the foundation. The team is so confident in the effectiveness of the new drilling technology, they're already planning a large-scale version of this drill that will be able to bore the sockets for piles that are over 9 metres in diameter anywhere in the world, from Taiwan to the US or France. Certainly we're seeing huge growth in the Americas, and if you look at the Asia-Pacific region, uh, we're seeing developments in Taiwan and Japan, there's also Korea and Vietnam are looking to progress developments. This is Julia Roop, Fugro's Global Business Development Manager for Offshore Wind, and it's her job to keep track of the growing industry. Australia has development plans for its first offshore wind farm called Star of the South. And there are other emerging countries such as Brazil. Each of these new markets are busily creating roadmaps to assess where their resources are greatest and how to get this power to the demand centres. Back in the UK, we have a different kind of challenge around scaling up to meet the new generation targets. We've really seen the offshore wind market develop hugely over the past 10 to 20 years. It's grown hugely. Um, it's gone through a commercialisation phase. Um, it's now fully industrialised and it's become a core energy generating technology. And then last year, the government announced the UK offshore wind sector deal. And this ties uh, the UK government and the offshore wind sector to working much more closely together uh, to transform offshore wind generation um, into uh, a low-cost, low-carbon, flexible grid system. And it also signs us up to certain commitments. So we're looking to have 30 gigawatts of installed capacity by 2030. At least that's where we were. Boris Johnson, in his election campaign, actually looked to raise that to 40 gigawatts installed by uh, 2030. Manifesto promises don't always make it into policy, but this time it did. And in the Queen's speech, actually, that was committed to and they are looking to raise that target by another 10 gigawatts. So it will be uh, 40 gigawatts by 2030. And they're also looking at 
50 gigawatts by 2050. And this all fits in with the UK uh, looking to reach net zero by 2050. To achieve 40 gigawatts by 2030, we need to more than double the number of turbines offshore, even though they're producing six times more capacity than the original demonstrator project at Blythe that we visited last week. And to ensure that the government maintains a supportive policy environment, the industry has to keep innovating to drive down costs. The first step for developers then is to choose the right site and then learn as much as possible about it. We just build up a picture of the site, uh, we look and understand risk at that site and any constraints to develop an offshore wind farm and how that will impact the installation um, and any operations. Data is everything, from understanding the wind profile to detailed analysis of the ground conditions. From the wind perspective, one innovation that's helping gather wind profile data are new floating LiDAR buoys that are just a fraction of the cost of traditional bottom-fixed meteorological towers that developers had to erect previously. These offshore met masts were built in turbine locations to measure wind speed and direction at a variety of heights, but instead recent floating measurement devices are now out at sea. Inez Martin Grandes is the tender coordinator at Fugro Norway in Trondheim, where the company developed and now manufactures its Sea-Watch Wind LiDAR buoy. This builds on its WaveScan technology, which has been used for MetOcean data monitoring for the past 30 years. At the moment, uh, the LiDAR sensor it is validated up to 200 meters, but it has the capacity to measure up to 300 meters. And currently, we are measuring up to 250 meters for, a, for an existing client. The boy was developed with Norwegian universities, the Norwegian Research Council and energy companies. And pre-deployment validation testing is carried out at Fugro's Freuer offshore test site. Floating LiDAR has been identified by the UK-based Carbon Trust Offshore Wind Accelerator as a crucial technology in driving down costs in offshore wind. As such, it's published a roadmap aimed at bringing LiDAR boys to market. And within this programme, the Sea-Watch Wind LiDAR boy has been qualified as pre-commercial or stage two, meaning that the technology has been successfully validated. Commercial or stage three is expected to be reached during 2020. Today, there's 38 Sea-Watch Wind LiDAR boys which have been used in 30 commercial projects in countries such as the Netherlands, Japan, Norway, the UK, Poland, France, Taiwan, the US and South Korea. Data from the buoy can be transmitted via satellite. This means that uh, the data uh, is uh, stored and logged in on board of the buoy, but at the same time the, the data is transmitted via satellite to the server of the, of the client and to the SeaWatch cloud, so the client has access to the data in, in real time. Other data that's critical in building up a picture of the site that Julia described is geotechnical data about the seabed where the turbines are to be constructed. This is done by taking borehole samples from the sites and sending them to the lab for analysis. That lab is run by Alana Horton. Sited at Wallingford in Oxfordshire, the laboratory has a throughput of around 13,000 geotechnical lab tests every year, 4,000 of which are advanced soil tests. Alana says the scale of the lab enables them to carry out more extensive testing than anywhere else in the world. The equipment is spread through a series of interconnected rooms and everywhere I turned there was another perspex column compressing soil or passing currents through it. 
We do testing right from the most basic classification testing, so kind of your particle size distribution, particle density, that kind of thing, um, right through your whole suite of triaxials and um, odometers, CRS tests. CRS stands for constant rate of strain testing and measures the compression response of soil. So we do cyclic testing, cyclic triaxials, cyclic simple shear, and we also do resonant columns, which is probably one of the most advanced tests that we do. We're also involved in quite a lot of research collaboration projects with our clients uh, where we're developing new ways of testing things. So what do all these tests do? Put simply, they're designed to explore aspects of the soil response which may affect the turbine. The most simple characterisation tests are to measure particle size distribution and particle densities. But it quickly becomes more complex with things like automated odometer testing, which repeatedly compresses the soil sample to assess its deformation response. So basically we would emulate the stresses that that soil has been through before and that would help to know, um, help our clients to know what stress that soil can be exerted to in the future so it will help with their stability assessment and then there's another form of shear testing called triaxial testing overall capacity for this is increasing significantly to cope with the increasing demand from the offshore wind industry so with the triaxial testing so we can do isotropic or anisotropic consolidation um, and we would do them in either compression or extension and we do them drained or undrained did you get that me neither. Fortunately, Alana is good at breaking it down. Yeah, so essentially with the effective stress testing and the triaxials, we are um, loading the sample to what we believe it actually was under in situ, so out in the field under the weight of the seabed and, and the water above. And then we are applying more pressure once it's stabilised at that load so that we can model how it will react when you're installing a, a wind turbine or, or whatever foundation that you're doing. The samples also need to be tested to failure. Something that is really important with offshore wind is the cyclic testing that we do. So basically uh, we do cyclic triaxial tests and we also do cyclic simple shear tests. Um, so with both of those we take the samples to a large strain catastrophic failure. One of the more sophisticated tests are the resonant column machines which vibrate the sample which then allows us to create a degradation curve which is critical for components of design um, mainly kind of within pile design which is really important for the monopiles for, for wind turbines. Where the degradation curve refers to the stiffness of the soil. As the offshore wind industry grows Alana is definitely feeling the impact. Just because the sites are so large and they require so much testing to be able to, to get them through. Um, so we are trying to implement as much as we can to try and capture that upturn in the market and, and keep up with that increase. Um, so we have, even just in the last year, we've, we've actually been investing in more equipment. So we have more simple shear machines, more triaxials, more resonant columns, more ring shears, shear boxes. Uh, we invested in the automatic odometers and there's going to be a lot more investment over the next years, definitely. And this means more people. Since 2018, we started off with approximately 20 people um, and now we are currently standing at around 42. And that is purely to get these tests through and to provide our clients with all the data that they need. Getting extensive and detailed data about wind farm sites is not just important for the placement and performance of the physical infrastructure. It's also helping geotechnical engineers like Scott White to create better predictive models for designing foundations. 
I work on foundation design for offshore wind turbine foundations. Over the last five years, I've been undertaking an engineering doctorate at the University of Oxford, funded by Fugro, looking at developing mathematical models to improve the design of offshore wind turbine foundations. Offshore wind foundations can account for as much as 30% of the capital cost of a wind farm, so getting the design right is critical. When we're designing a foundation for an offshore structure, there's, there's, a, there's an interaction between the geotechnical engineers who are concerned with the soil and then the structure engineers who, of course, design primarily the structure and, and the foundation. And as geotechnical engineers, we have to give them enough information to go ahead with the design. That's typically done in that we give a soil spring, it's called, so forced displacement springs along the, the pile or, or at the foundation. And the analysis performed to calculate these soil reaction springs used by structural engineers for the design used the soil testing that Alana described earlier. So essentially we're trying to give them some reaction curves or springs that, that capture the response of the soil. But the response of the soil and hence the soil reaction curve isn't always the same throughout the life of a turbine. Because wind turbines experience cyclic loading, so, so they're exposed to, to a lot of repeat loading, these springs can in stiffen or they can degrade in stiffness or they can get softer or they can get stronger. It really depends on the type of material you have and, and the things that are undergoing. And that actually is why we've developed these models. The models are developed to accurately capture the soil behaviour and the better they are, the more accurately they can represent the true behaviour of soil when performing foundation design analysis. So the finite analysis technique um, has been used for decades by, by engineers to predict basically the forced displacement of, of structures. And when you do that analysis, which is what we are doing for, for offshore wind turbine foundations, um, the thing that is very, very important is something called the constitutive model, which is just the bit of the code that predicts the stress-strain response, the deformation of materials. And in this case, it's soil, but it, but it could be any other material. But in this case, it's, it's soils. And what we've, what we've developed is, is a suite of models based on lots and lots of laboratory data from lots of soils across the North Sea. To, to better capture the response of, of certain features of soil behaviour that will drive the response of, of, these, of this analysis, essentially. In essence, the models have been developed to better predict the site-specific soil response, with the aim to make design analysis more accurate and hence the overall foundation design more cost-effective by relying less on empirical design methods. Are using these advanced models for design, we have done recently on an offshore wind farm. So... This offshore wind farm in, in the Belgium sector, we looked at applying it to a substation first because it's, it's one location. It's good to sort of, let's say, walk before we're running with this approach. So we designed the, the foundation, which was a, a monopile for using, let's say, historical technique. We ended up with a seven and a half meter diameter monopile that was 40 meters long. We then redesigned it using, let's say, more innovative techniques with the structural engineers, and they were using more innovative techniques that they've they've developed over, over years. We then redesigned the monopile and ended up with a 30 meter or about a 30 meter length monopile. So that was a 10 meter saving on, on the monopile length. And this was just for two substation foundation piles. If you scale that across a wind farm where there's 100 turbines, it's, it's clearly a, a, a huge saving. But Scott says the most important thing is that models are getting closer to reality and reflect a trend in the industry towards continuous improvement through collaboration. There's a lot of research and development um, going on. For me personally, the thing I'm really enjoying about being involved in offshore wind just now is there's a real sense of creativity and, and ability to, if you have an idea uh, and you float it to not just your company but the industry as a whole, 
companies will come together and they'll research that idea because there's a everyone wants to bring the cost down and there's a real push then for innovation, research and development. So I think to be involved in an industry where there's that push, there's that scalability and there's essentially the economics make sense now to, to, to really push for that, that that's, that's exciting. And this continuous improvement in the industry from its ever increasing turbines to the improved data capture and modelling is what's brought the UK offshore wind prices down to an all-time low seen the Netherlands embark upon the world's first subsidy-free wind farm and led to offshore wind markets emerging all over the world. The good news for both emerging and mature markets is that 20 years of experience in the UK and Europe is being used to continually improve site design and construction methods, from new modelling tools to state-of-the-art drills. And as Julia said, if countries like the UK are serious about achieving carbon neutrality, then rapid expansion of offshore wind is vital. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced by Bernadette Ballantyne and Ross McPherson, edited by John Young and Susanna Pace. Executive Offshore Wind Producer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Fugro and Saipem. If you like this podcast, please share us on social media or leave us a review. You can find us on all podcast apps, including iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts, or go to our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. Have you heard the Tunnelling podcast yet? Produced in partnership with the British Tunnelling Society. Go to tunnelling.reby.media or find it on your podcast app.